Throughout history, the church has been plagued with cultural blind spots. Now, what I mean is that Christians, people who probably meant well, got swept up in what was culturally acceptable, and they forgot that it's the Bible that dictates our behavior and our thinking, not popular culture. History has shown that Christians have done some ungodly things. The Crusades and the slave trade were both atrocities that unfortunately had large support from Christians. Closer to our day, many Christians either fought against the advancement of civil rights or they were silent. Bible colleges and seminaries refused to allow anyone who wasn't white to attend, and this is our history, unfortunately. It's not that these people were evil, looking for something sinister to do to others. They just ignored misinterpreted, or misapplied scripture. Now, when we look back at the history of the church, we may wonder how people could have been so foolish. Is there any logical reasoning for a Christian to support capturing people from one continent, enslaving them, putting them on crowded ships, sending them over, auctioning them off, splitting up families, and treating them like animals? There's not. But many Christians supported this practice for hundreds of years. Many Christians supported this practice by owning other humans. In fact, there were pastors, documented evidence of pastors standing in front of their church and saying that it was sinful to not support slavery. Wrap your mind around that for a second. So many Christians missed this. Why? Why have so many Christians who've known the Bible, who've trusted in Christ for their salvation, missed issues that we see so clearly? The truth is they were far more influenced, at least in certain aspects, they were more influenced by the culture than they were by the Bible. Those pastors who refused to take a stand for civil rights in the 50s and 60s were wrong. Some were afraid to be connected to theological liberals and moderates. I get that. But some were concerned that their church would fire them if they said anything. Others were certainly just racist, but I'm certain that most of them just did not see this as an issue worth debating. Many said it was a political issue and they had no right to speak into politics. But only a few years later, they got into politics when it came to abortion. And then a few years after that, they got into it when it talked about marriage. They had blind spots that the culture created, and the pull was too strong for many to handle. The reality is, though, that every culture has blind spots. I think in a few decades, there will certainly be issues, and I don't know what they are, but there will be issues that we will look back in a few decades, and future generations will say, how foolish were they? Now, as we've studied Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, we've seen plenty of blind spots. Areas where people just could not connect the truth of God's word and the gospel to how they lived. In our passage today, some of the people in the church were visiting with prostitutes. Now, while we see what was happening in Corinth, we're disgusted and rightfully so. But please remember that we all have blind spots. We all have things that will be brought to light. And my hope today is in applying this ancient text, you'll see what those blind spots are in your life, because we all have them. So my first point this morning from verses 12 through 14 is Paul's operation and his correction. 
Now, in this point, there are three main ideas. The first is that sexual sin is harmful. Look at this. Paul says in verse 12, all things are lawful to me. This was likely a a common statement in the Corinthian culture. These people were liberated from the, the shackles of repression. They were free to do whatever they wanted so long as it didn't physically harm someone else. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's Western culture still alive 2,000 years later. Sexual freedom is prized in the world today. You can be who, who or what you want. You can do what you want with whoever you want, and it's nobody's business but your own. But look at what the words that Paul uses next. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. Yes, the people had no legal restriction on their behavior. They could do whatever they wanted, but it wasn't helpful. Maybe your translation says helpful, beneficial, or profitable. That's the idea here. While you may be able to legally do something, it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. Good example, you can go to the liquor store, and you could buy a case full of liquor, and you could go home and drink it all at the same time, and you could just take it all down, right? It's legal, as long as you don't go out in your car and drive. But is it helpful? Is it profitable? When you wake up in the morning, if you happen to wake up, you'll realize, no, it's not. Freedom, abuse of your freedom has consequences. I've counseled teenagers who are in the middle of their parents' divorce. I remember one man left his teenage daughters and his wife for another woman, and he couldn't understand why his daughters were upset with him. And he said, well, God, doesn't God just want me to be happy? And he said, if I'm, if I'm happy now, you should be happy for me. Yes, he was legally able to do what he wanted to do. Everything he did was legally okay. But his actions had consequences. Think of what a husband or a wife does when they break the trust of their spouse. Yes, families can and should work through the pain and they can heal. But those scars never go away. One commentator wrote this. This sexual sin has broken more marriages, shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying, stealing, cheating, and killing, as well as bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness. You know what I'm saying makes sense. I pray that God has protected you from this. With all my heart, I pray that God has protected you from this, but the truth of the matter is there is not one family that hasn't been tainted by this. You will have experienced or witnessed what sexual sin will do to a person, their family, their friends, and even their church. This leads to the second idea. Sexual sin is controlling. Look at the second half of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Sin takes good things, things that God created, things that God has given us, things that are good in our lives, and it twists and contorts it and to make it something bad contrary to what it was intended for. Food is good, but eating too much of it or too many bad things will make you sick. Work is good. Too much of it is not. Rest is good. Too much of it is not. God has given us intimacy for our good, but when the biblical standard of one man and one woman in a covenant relationship and a marriage is ignored, bad stuff happens. 
Sin opens the door for an avalanche of awful things to come reside in our hearts. And the statement that Paul repeats in verse 12, all things are lawful to me, ties what we've read in chapters 5 and chapter 6 together. It may have been legal to sue your fellow believer, but it's not good. It damages the reputation that you have and the reputation of the church. In other words, it hinders the movement of the gospel. And that leads us into the third idea here. Sexual sin is corrupting. Let's read verses 13 and 14 again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The Corinthian Christians were probably doing what people do today. Well, it's natural, right? God created us this way. Why would God create something that's so good and so natural and then put boundaries and restrictions around it? Have you heard that before? I, I have. Holding to a biblical standard of intimacy will bring you derision, 100% guarantee. You'll be called a prude, old-fashioned. You'll, you, you'll, you'll be said that you don't belong in modern times, that you're of some long-ago time. But see, isn't it true that when God creates something, he often creates boundaries to protect us from dishonoring him and ruining our lives? Why? Because he knows that his creation, what he's created, can quickly become an idol. Do we not see that in, in Romans? That people traded in God's truth for a lie and they worship the created things and not the creator? This is what our hearts do. We take what God's created and we worship those things. Our things that were created by God, they grow in the ground naturally. But are you going to go out into the woods and start eating all the mushrooms that you see? God created them. You may die. You, you may get sick. But why would God create something and then prohibit us from experiencing something? Do you see the foolishness in this attitude? And Paul says in verse 13 that one day God will even end our need for food. When we take communion as an assembled body, we're taking part in a picture of the feast that will never run out of food. We need food to survive and be healthy, but when we are made to be like Christ, we won't need either of those things. But we all know that uh, there are people in the world who live for what they can experience here and now. Extreme Epicureans live for the next bite, the next food that they can consume. And we know this for certain. Many people live for the next intimate experience that they can grab. There is something, though, appealing, isn't there, about people who shun wealth and possessions and instead go after experiences. For about a year, I've followed various world travelers and some strange stories of people who live on boats and just like to sail around the world, I guess. Um, and while I can't pick up my life and go blog in some foreign country on a boat for three months, um, I do sort of live vicariously through them. They eat food that I can't pronounce, that looks really good, and they meet people that are fascinating. And I learn a lot, and I, I find myself sometimes wishing I could switch places with them just for a moment. But the truth is that we will all one day die, and those experiences will go with us. We cannot take those with us when we die. 
There will be no need for a house in Tuscany or a plate full of white truffles. We will feast at the table that Christ has set for us. Sin, especially sexual sin, takes place, takes us places that we should never go. It pushes us further and further away from the one who has given us life. These pleasures don't last. They consume us. They are here for a moment and then they're gone like a mist. And the truth of the matter is that our bodies were never intended for unending pleasure, at least not now. Paul writes in verses 13 and 14, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And here's the thing to remember about all this. The truth of the matter is that for Christians, our bodies aren't our own anyway. Christian, you are not just spiritually joined with Christ. Anyone who hears the gospel and trusts in Christ for their salvation is joined together with Christ. Look at verse 15. Paul says, do you not know that our body, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. This language should not surprise you. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Romans 12, Paul writes, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And we call each other the body of Christ all the time. It's, it can fall quickly into church lingo, but it has deep roots in scripture. We are the body of Christ, members of of Christ. And this is important to remember when we look at the second half of verse 15. The church belongs to Christ, and linking it up with the prostitute, uniting with the prostitute, is unthinkable. Verse 16 says that when two people come together, they become one flesh. They are forever united, whether they like it or not. This has its roots all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. This is not new. Now I want you to think. Think about all the stuff that we've seen in 1 Corinthians to this point. What is the big overarching issue? The people were sinning, and they were proud of it, and doing that damaged their gospel witness. The name of Jesus was dragged through the mud because people who claimed to follow him were behaving like pagans. There was no difference between the church and those outside the church. Now suppose in your life, you're at work, and one of your coworkers comes to you and says that they're having an affair. But not only that, they say, you know, I still love my wife, I still care for her, but I also love this other person. What do you say to that? I can tell you what I say. No, you don't love your wife because you wouldn't be doing this to her if you really loved her. You wouldn't treat her like garbage. Now, what does it say to the world when Christians not only sin, but they accept the sin? They celebrate it. It says that we aren't taking seriously the calling that we have. We're speaking out of both sides of our mouths. Our bodies belong to Christ, and we must behave like it. And I can tell you this for certain, that even people who've never stepped foot inside of a church know this to be true. Maybe you've been confronted, I have, where people say, well, that's not real good Christian behavior, is it, Ryan? Shot right to the heart, isn't it? 
They see it. The world outside of these doors sees that we are hypocrites, that we proclaim one thing and then do another. Let that not be so. Finally, in verses 18 through 20, we see the uniqueness of the sin. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that, the body is a, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. How many times have we seen families and lives wrecked because they ignored this? My guess is that every single one of us right now could tell stories of things that we've experienced or things that we've seen where we've, people have disregarded what the Bible says and instead gone their own way and the carnage that follows after that. Yes, all sin is equally damning. Yes, one sin is enough for us to deserve the wrath of God, but we can all agree that sins have different consequences. Taking a magazine from your doctor's office because you didn't finish the article is not the same as robbing a bank. I hope you can see that there's a big difference there. In the years that I've served in pastoral ministry, nothing, nothing has had the widespread, long-lasting, damaging impact that sexual sins have. I've watched families disintegrate. And I've watched people walk away from the church and walk away from Christ. This is unique because of the damage that it inflicts on so many people. And there's something about it that psychologically changes us. Do you, do you remember what life was like when you were 13 or 14 and you've figured out that, that, that I found the person that I'm going to marry, right? You write their names down all the time. You're dreaming about what your life is going to look like. You, if you're a teenager now, you're going to one of those morphing websites and putting your picture in the other person's picture and seeing what your kids are going to look like. We didn't have that when I was a kid. We just thought about it. You were consumed by that person. That doesn't stop when you're an adult. The rush of a new thrill or some kind of emotional or physical attachments makes us do things that we would never do otherwise. Movies romanticize this, but the reality is that it's destructive. Paul's response in these verses is pastoral and firm. He says that we are to avoid these sins, not just because he says it, because we've been bought with the price. God sent his son Jesus to live with us, to live a perfect life, and to die for us. He hung on a cross in unbearable pain, suffering, and he was rejected by most. He carried the weight of sin on our shoulders while he hung on a rough piece of wood for hours. Jesus knew the reason that he came was to suffer the wrath of God for us. And even though he knew all of the sins that each one of us would do, he still did it anyway. What we see in our text is that Jesus did all that, and the Corinthians knew that, yet they chose to live as if it never happened. There is no way that someone can be affected by the grace and mercy of God and not be changed. God has given us everything that we have, and he demands that we give him our lives in return. When we are converted to the faith, God changes us. He changes our hearts. He makes them new, and he gives us a new perspective to see the world. 
He gives us new affections. We love differently. We're interested in different things. We seek unity rather than discord. We seek peace rather than conflict. We live to serve others rather than seeking out our own pleasure. We give up what we desire so that we can be blessings to other people. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying this. He's saying, look, I know that you're holding on to what you enjoyed in your previous life. I know that you're pulled in two different directions. I know the culture of the day accepts those behaviors, but you've been called to something higher. You've been called to serve the king, and you cannot serve the king and yourself at the same time. You have to be fully devoted to God if you've been forgiven and adopted by him. You owe him your allegiance and your life. And at the end of verse 20, Paul says this, so glorify God in your body. To glorify God is our highest calling. There is a reason that the first commandment says that we cannot have other gods, meaning that God must be first in our life. It's just a stage for everything else that we believe and everything else that we do. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. What this means is that we cannot serve God and serve our fleshly desires. We cannot serve God and stay in our old way of life. We cannot serve God and live lives that are not only defined by sin, but lives that celebrate it. And Paul's looking into the Corinthian church and seeing they've done just that. That they've forgotten the gospel, they've ignored the gospel, and instead they've gone back to their previous lives because, well, Christian freedom, right? Now, I have a confession to make to you. I've struggled with how to preach this. Part of me wanted to figure out some way to skip over this or give it to someone else to preach just so I didn't have to do it. And as I'm studying through 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, I'm kind of wondering what in the world was I thinking to even start preaching through 1 Corinthians. And yet another part of me wants to soften Paul's words here, tone them down, kind of go or end around them. They're uncomfortable. However uncomfortable this has made you listening, just be happy that you're not me preaching this. But the truth is that God's word matters. My commitment to the word of God means that I preach the word of God. I don't skip around or brush over difficult passages. Believe me, there are certain passages that I wouldn't mind doing that. But God's word matters. To avoid what it says declares that it doesn't really matter that much. Or that it's not relevant. But a passage like this could easily become a burden on you. Especially if you've done some of these things that we've seen in this passage. Guilt weighs heavy on the person. There often seems to be no way out. Listen, I want to give you some encouragement. God's plan from the beginning was to give you a way out. Give you a way that your burdens can be taken off of your shoulders. Adam and Eve deserved to be separated from God forever. Yes, their sin had consequence. They had to work and they would ultimately die. But God promised one who would come to defeat evil and sin forever. Promising to defeat our pain and to take away our suffering. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This means that you can come to Jesus even if you've done these things that we've seen in 1 Corinthians. Anyone who teaches this passage, and this is, I've heard this before, and they teach through this and they say, well, just don't do these things. They've missed the idea of the entire Bible. 
You may have done things. To be quite honest, most of us have. But the gospel says that even the murderer and the prostitute still have hope in Christ. That this gospel message that we preach and proclaim extends as far as the most lost person that we can ever imagine. There is not one single person who's too far gone from the gospel message to change their lives and to give them hope. Even if you've done the worst things imaginable, you're not too far away from the grace that God gives. Yes, the behaviors listed in 1 Corinthians are bad. We should aim to avoid those things because all actions have consequences. Some of us will suffer physically. Uh, Most will deal with emotional or spiritual issues. Those things don't bring God glory, so we should avoid them. Our actions have consequences, but Jesus has promised for those who trust in him that he will take those guilt and the consequences for our behavior and he'll place them on himself. Do you remember John 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman? You guys know this story. I want to read this passage to you. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus says this to her. He says, go, call your husband and come here. He knew. He's God. He knew. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, serve, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That woman was forever changed. How do I know that? What did she do next? She ran into town and started telling everyone, come meet the Messiah, I've met him. Come out and you have to come meet this guy. And people came out and met Jesus. She was an evangelist from day one. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery? She had committed a sin that, 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 that the standard was death. And so as people were getting ready to stone her, Jesus came out. And, 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 and yes, the, what the woman did had consequences. But what did Jesus do? He showed her grace. Again, 
please don't think that I'm advocating for ignoring the biblical standard. I'm not. The Bible says that we must aim to be holy. We're given a standard that is to govern every part of our lives, but what happens when we don't meet that standard? This is the question that I had never heard growing up, and shame on every pastor, every preacher, and every Bible teacher for messing this up, because all that I saw in here was don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. This is the problem with purity culture. I'm all for purity, but the problem with purity culture is what happens when you mess up? What happens when you do something that you know deep down you shouldn't have done? Where's the grace now? That's the problem with this, is that so many people have preached these, these passages, have preached these texts, and all they've done is added weight to people who are already forgiven from their sins. Let that not be so. What happens when we do something in 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Corinthians 5? Grace is there for us. Jesus carries our burdens. Yes, there is a standard, but we cannot meet that standard perfectly. We aim for it, but only Jesus has ever perfectly accomplished this. Rest in Jesus. Not only when you are weary, but when you are consumed by guilt. Listen, you can't carry it. You were never intended to carry it. Give it to Christ. Rest in him when you think you've done too much or you've gone too far. Rest in him because his grace is sufficient for you. Would you pray with me?